I have uh, this electronic uh, preaching uh, calendar that I have that sort of helps me to remind me of certain days coming up. You know, if uh, Mother's Day or Father's Day is coming up, I'll want to make a sermon, you know, right around that topic. Or Memorial Day, maybe something about remembering. Or uh, even, you know, Thanksgiving coming up. You know, maybe a lesson on thanks. Do you know why I have January 22nd marked on this calendar? January 22nd. Well, of course, this was... uh, when Roe versus Wade was enacted, when it came down as law. And I said to myself, as long as I get the opportunity to preach from the pulpit, that on that week, on that Sunday, uh, around the January 22nd, that I'm going to preach a lesson uh, about the sanctity of life or about the, the problems with abortion. And if you remember, I did that. My sermon that morning was Hands That Shed Innocent Blood, uh, coming from Proverbs chapter 6. Well, can you believe that a few months after that lesson was given, that Roe versus Wade was overturned? That 49 years of the legalization of ending defenseless lives in the womb, and our prayers had been answered. You know, it was quite a shock to me that that I only had to preach one lesson and uh, it was overturned. But friends, it's not over yet. You know, from the federal level, it's been overturned, but now it comes down to the states, the states to decide And, of course, I was asked uh, a week or so ago to uh, maybe mention Amendment 2 uh, for the congregation because I know that some some people have been a little bit confused as to that. And if you know that Amendment 2 is on the ballot here on Tuesday, uh, as as most of you go to vote, and the the wordage of this amendment says, uh, to protect human life, nothing in this Constitution shall be construed to secure or protect a right to abortion or require the funding of abortion. And so basically what that's saying, if you vote yes to that, you're basically saying that, yes, you are in favor of of amending the Constitution to include this statement. Again, saying yes is, in other words, is you are protecting the lives of innocent uh, children of the unborn. And so we just want to make mention of that this morning, of this very important vote uh, happening on Tuesday. And hopefully you will uh, make your, uh, your, your vote there count uh, for that. But this morning, that kind of re- reminded me of maybe a lesson that maybe we need to remind ourselves around this time of year. You know, you're familiar with the saying, uh, never talk politics or religion in front of fam- family and friends. Well, we're going to break both of those rules here this morning uh, because, again, it's that time of year. Right? It's the mid-year or the midterm year. Uh, people are excited about this. There are political ads nonstop, uh, either in the television or in print. Uh, I recently heard a postal worker say this, uh, that you know, they can't wait. They just cannot wait until this time of year is over. Because as much as they hate delivering those ads in the mail, uh, she said that uh, we even hate receiving them. You know, we get so caught up in the stories about our candidates and our political uh, positions. And it's interesting. It's interesting that there are some uh, Christians who are more vocal about their political party or their candidate rather than Jesus. Right? That they would be willing to go uh, knock door to door for their candidate, to put up a yard signs for their candidate. But yet for Jesus, they remain quiet. So again, I thought it'd be a good time for us to share a few reminders with you. Do you know the Bible has much to say about the role of government in the lives of the Christian? And so let's consider what God, 
word has to say about the government. And as you see up here, the the main text we're going to look at is Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. But uh, so let's let's go ahead and read that together. And let's notice first the nature of government. Again, Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God for you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render all to what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. You know, to sort of get the context of where this is coming from, this ties in nicely with uh, the end of Romans chapter 12. Paul there is dealing with how Christians should react to their enemies. And he says in those verses, you know, don't take vengeance for yourself and, and overcome evil with good. But now he says, this is how God wants you to handle uh, those types of things. You know, while while God's still in heaven and you're on earth, this is how you're going to handle these things. And he mentions first there that the the government, those ruling authorities, are appointed by God. Verse 1. You know, government is not ungodly in of itself. The concept here begins with God. Right? God, this is part of God's plan. And as we read through those verses, we notice the role of the government is to protect its citizens. And so the idea of saying that, uh, that Christians should have no relationship with the government uh, goes too far. Because, again, this is God-ordained. Respect it, Paul says, because it is pointed by God. He also says there that it is God's minister in verse 4. Are you comfortable with saying that, that the government is God's minister? You might be thinking... Do you know? Do you know what our president has said or done? Or do you know what the governor said or or did? He's God's minister. Well, God can use people wherever they are for his glory or to accomplish his purposes. We see that throughout the scriptures. You remember in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Daniel, this man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. This man was not a righteous man, but God used him for his purpose. God used him to punish Judah and, and the Israelites and all these other uh, nations that were because of their great sin. Matter of fact, in Jeremiah 27, verse 6, God refers to Nebuchadnezzar as my servant, my servant Nebuchadnezzar. See, he was doing the work of God. Now, he didn't really uh, understand that. He didn't know that. And again, he was not a righteous man. But he was the servant of God. Government officials might be godless. Like Nebuchadnezzar, they might be profane, but again, God says that they serve a purpose. Now, of course, God will hold them accountable for the laws and the rules that they make if they are ungodly, but they are to be held responsible for their stewardship. 
Paul even says there in verses 3 and 4, it is designed, the government, to restrain and punish evildoers. Again, that's the purpose of government here that Paul says, that, they, that evildoers would think twice before committing a wrong, right? That the government's a deterrent. It, it, it does not bear the sword in or for nothing, he says. And then on the flip side, it's designed to protect the good. Right? It's a blessing to those who want to live a righteous life to have that protection. Again, there's the nature of government. Well, you might be asking, well, what are my obligations to the government? Well, we noticed a few of those. But, but for this first one, uh, flip with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and notice what the Apostle Paul had to say to uh, Timothy in this letter. Uh, first, again, 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Paul says that we are to pray for the government. It says, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. You know, we might be pretty quick to criticize some of our political leaders. And, you know, in the United States, we have that freedom. Right? We know that there are some countries that have existed or exist now that if you speak out against the government, you could be put to death, you can be imprisoned. And so we have uh, that right, if you will, to uh, criticize uh, the government or government officials. But have you ever prayed for your leaders? Paul says, you've got to pray for them. If you've criticized them, ask yourselves, when is the last time that I prayed for them? It's one of our obligations, Paul says, and because of that, it's going to lead to a tranquil and quiet life. Again, God expects this of you. Notice back in Romans chapter 13, uh, not only does we, do we have an obligation to pray for them, but Paul also says we have an obligation to pay them, paying our taxes. Right? He says that specifically there in, in verse uh, 6, for because you also pay taxes. You know, if we cheat on our taxes... By implication, we're cheating on God, are we not? But Paul states the reason why we are to pay taxes, and again, that's for that protection, right? That role of government to protect and to punish the evildoers. Now, I know that not many enjoy paying taxes. If I were to ask uh, this, uh, everyone here, if you do, there's probably not going to be many hands that go up. But do you realize how good we have it in this life because of some of those things, the, the, the paved roads that we have, the school systems, the men and women who are protecting our lives, whether it's in the police department or firefighters or EMTs? And can I say that I want all of those things, but I want it for free? Well, no, Paul says pay your taxes, pay your share. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Right? And today we would say render to the United States the things that are the United States. Render to Kentucky, the state of Kentucky, the things that are the state of Kentucky. Pray for them, pay them, and then also we notice obey them. Again, in Romans 13, verse 1, let every person, let every soul be subject. Right? That's not just talking about the Christian, but the non-Christian as well. Everyone is to be subjection, in subjection to the, to the, over, the authorities. But obey them to what extent? We know in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, that uh, the scriptures say we must obey God rather than men. You know, if you're asked to do something immoral or contrary to the doctrine of Christ, Paul says, don't do it. 
the, the scriptures are going to say don't do it. We can even think of examples all the way back in the Old Testament. You remember in Exodus chapter 1, as we uh, start to uh, see uh, the, the Israelite, the Hebrew uh, people growing in strength and number there in the land of Egypt. And they're growing at a pace that uh, the Egyptians are getting worried. They're getting worried that they're going to overtake them. And so the, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, goes to a couple of Hebrew midwives and say, listen, when, when uh, they give birth... If it's a daughter, it's okay. Let her live. But if she gives birth to a boy, you're to put an end to his life. Now, do you remember what the Hebrew midwives decided to do in that instance? They didn't listen to the king. They didn't listen to the government because they said, we fear God. We know that ending life uh, is wrong. It's murder. That's contrary to God's will. We're not going to do that. And so they told the king, we're not going to do that. And God said uh, in that chapter that he blessed those Hebrew midwives immensely because they stood up for him. And Paul says, give them their tax, give them their custom, fear them, honor them, obey them, pray, pay, obey. Right. Those are the obligations we have towards the government. But again, what if our government is corrupt? What if we live in a country where the government's evil or immoral or maybe even overreaching? What then? Well, let's notice a few of the things. How should a Christian act when mistreated by his government? First of all, we can notice this. It could be a lot worse. You know, think back all the way to the days of Jesus and Paul and Peter and the, the, the government that they lived under and the Roman Empire. You know, if you think that things are tough and degrading now in the 21st century, you know, you might want to go back to the history books and read about some of these Roman emperors that lived during those times. Because these men flaunted, flaunted their wickedness. Yes, I understand that we're in a society now that we're seeing sort of this moral downgrade. But it's not as bad as it used to be. These Roman emperors practiced pedophilia and homosexuality and rape and incest. They, they even claimed to be God, some of them. So again, it can get a whole lot worse. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Acts, uh, particularly chapters 3 and 4, and we'll notice an instance here. In Acts chapter 3 and 4, begins by the apostle Peter and John. They, they healed this man who was uh, lame. He was a lame beggar, uh, lame from his mother's womb, and they heal him. Right? They, they miraculously heal this man. And Peter goes on at the end of this chapter to preach, really, his second gospel sermon. Right? In Acts chapter 2, we often say that's Peter's first gospel sermon. In Acts chapter 3, he preaches another sermon, but this time there's some different results. Because this time he's going to be arrested for what he's preaching. In the crowd are some Sadducees. Remember the Sadducees? These are those who, uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in any afterlife. And so when they heard uh, Peter preaching about the resurrected Jesus, well that didn't sit well with the Sadducees. And so they have... Uh, Peter and John arrested. Look in Acts chapter 4, verse 7. It says, When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or by what name have you done this? You know, they wanted to punish John and Peter for preaching Jesus. But, but as you read throughout this chapter, they can't dismiss the great miracle that's taken place. They admit that this man was healed. And they can't dismiss that. And neither do they want to uh, punish, arrest them even further because they know that the people will rise up against them for such a great thing. Now skip all the way down to verses 17 and 18. 
Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 17. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Right? They, they brought Peter and John before them and said, listen, you know, we'll let you go. We'll let you get by this time. But don't I dare find you preaching about this man, Jesus, ever again. Matter of fact, if you're reading out of the New King James, I believe it says they severely threatened them with this. Stop preaching. But did this stop them? Oh, no, it didn't. Uh, they go back and they are excited. They are, they're going to continue preaching. Now look at verse 19. It says, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen or heard. You know, the actions of the government of their day did not persuade Peter and John from being faithful to the Lord. And so Peter and John, they go back to the other disciples at the rest of this chapter, and they go and they tell them all that had happened. And we read in verses 24 through 30 this prayer that they offer uh, because of these things. And they prayed, but I want you to note something in particular in verse 29. Notice what they prayed for. Again, Acts chapter 4, verse 29, it says, And now, Lord, take note of their threats. And grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. What would happen this morning if maybe some armed guards came into this building and had me arrested for preaching uh, scripture? Or what if they arrested you as well for being here worshiping? Uh, What are we going to be thinking at that time? You know, maybe I need to get a lawyer. Uh, maybe I could, you know, countersue them for arrest, falsely arresting me. Uh, maybe we'd be worried about them taking away the tax uh, exemption status of the church. That's not at all what these disciples of Jesus were praying for. Again, look what they prayed for. They prayed for boldness. They prayed for confidence in speaking the word of God. They didn't pray for a new government. They didn't pray for a new leader. They didn't pray for shorter term limits. But again, they prayed for boldness to speak, to keep on speaking God's word, to speak the truth, even in the midst of this corrupt government. And friends, Christians do not need the right president. They do not need the right governor to succeed in our mission or even the right form of government. There's been a lot of corrupt leaders and a lot of corrupt governments over the years. But Christianity is still here and it's still spreading. Would I want to live under an oppressive government? Well, of course not. No, I love the freedoms that we have here in the United States. But can I if I have to? Absolutely. If government fails us, we stay true to God's word. Again, Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. And so instead of praying to change the world, maybe we should be more like Peter and John and the apostles and ask God to change us. Help us to be bolder and more confident in our Christian lives. Psalm 11, verse 3. You know, David is writing this psalm and he's, he's uh, of course, he's, he's, he knows that his enemies are coming after him. He's, uh, he's worried about these things. And in verse 3 in particular, he asks this great question. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David is basically saying that if the society is degrading, if the government is corrupt all around me, these foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
And he tells us at the end of that in verse 7, continue to be righteous because God loves righteousness. Well, this morning we want to remember some truths. Remember some truths about the Christian government. And remember this, number one, that our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Now, I guess in a sense, we have dual citizenship. You know, we're, we're members of the United States. We're, uh, we're Kentuckians. We're Colombians. But we also, if you're a Christian, your citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. And maybe as naturalistic as I am, you know, that I bleed red, white, and blue, that citizenship is a distant second when it comes to heaven. My loyalty of heaven is far greater than this nation, again, which I love. I love these United States and what they stand for. But again, my citizenship here is a far second from heaven. It must come to it. And if it must come to it, you know, I'll have to disobey the government for God, right? Uh, for the, I'll disobey the nation to obey God. And we can't get caught up in the here and now. Again, who's in power, who's not in power, Typically, you know, if you speak out against someone or a political um, party uh, on one side, you know, you're going to get the counter argument from the other person, right? Well, uh, maybe so, but, you know, your person did this and this and this. As a Christian, I want the truth to prevail. I don't care where on the political spectrum you lie. I want truth to prevail. I'm against sin, whoever does it, whether it's the left or the right or the middle. Truth needs to prevail. And again, our citizenship is in heaven. Number two, obey God over man. If you're asked to do something immoral, speak up in boldness for Jesus. You know, there was a time in the first century when the Roman government went door to door uh, asking, where do your allegiance lies? Is it with Christ or, with it, or is it with Caesar? And if you said Christ, they may give you one or two more chances to change your mind. But if you continue to answer Christ, we know the Roman Colosseum is full of the blood of Christians who would not bow the knee to Caesar or even confess him as Lord. Again, obey God over man. And number three, take courage that the kingdom of God will never, ever be destroyed. We know that kingdoms come and go. We know that nations rise and fall. And Daniel, you remember the book of Daniel, he predicts this, the, the rise and fall of these four great uh, earthly empires, uh, the, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and, and the Romans. And you remember what he says there in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, talking about the days of the Roman Empire? He says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put into an end to all of these kingdoms, but itself will endure forever. Again, that kingdom, not made with hands, will last forever. It won't be left for another people, right? No one's going to take the place of that, uh, that, that leader because Jesus will always be sitting on that throne. Again, that's happened with Babylon, the Medes and Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and over and over again throughout time. Think of the book of Revelation here for a quick moment. Revelation, the book of Revelation, you know, that's really what that book is about. It's about standing up against a, a corrupt government. You know, that's why it was written the way it was in sort of this, this code, this apocryphal writing. You know, because if you got caught with that letter, you'd be in some big trouble. And so they wrote that in a way that only those uh, who were um, uh, Christians would understand uh, what was, that message was about. They didn't want that message falling into wrong hands. 
And as you read throughout the book of Revelation, you read about the blood of the Christians, you know, just basically dripping from page to page. Those who died because of the word of God, those who died because of the testimony that they maintained. And really, it looks all hopeless until you get to Revelation chapter 20. Notice with me what it says here in Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones. And they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. He's talking about those martyrs uh, who had been beheaded earlier. When, when it looked like that all had been lost for them, when they, when they were killed... They look defeated on this side of eternity. The scriptures say that they are now reigning with Christ. They were not defeated. Take courage, friends, that the kingdom of God will never be overthrowed. overthrowed. May we all conduct ourselves during this political season or any season in this life by demonstrating our loyalty to the king of kings over any earthly ruler and also by valuing our heavenly citizenship over any earthly uh, citizenship. This morning as we uh, conclude this lesson, we need to behave in a way that Jesus is more important, again, than any political party. You know, maybe you've seen this on Facebook or somewhere else. I really like this saying, but uh, people have been sharing this. It says, please don't let the elephants and the donkeys make you forget you belong to the Lamb. The Lamb, the, the sacrificial Lamb, Jesus Christ. The message of Jesus must be first in our lives. He is a perfect king in his perfect kingdom. And, but, but while we wait for that day, we want to remind ourselves that we have a responsibility to the governing officials of this day. It's appointed by God. Remember that. We, he, they are a minister of God. And it should be a function of our benefit. And we also have an obligation, again, to pray, pay, and obey but only obey to the extent that it would not disobey God in the act. We must obey God rather than men. But of course, Jesus, as we know at the end of Matthew chapter 28, has all authority in heaven and on earth. And we are uh, awaiting that day that we can um, be with him in his kingdom forevermore. And this morning, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a member of his kingdom, we would love the opportunity to talk to you about that, to study with you about putting Christ on in baptism, becoming or being added to his church, his kingdom. We know the Bible tells us to hear the word of God, believe that Jesus is the son of God, repent of our sins, confess him as Lord and be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. And the Lord will add you to his church or here this morning. Uh, if you need the prayers of this congregation, if you need the strength of this congregation, if you'd like to uh, place membership with us or talk to us about anything, um, this is a perfect time to do that. Uh, please let us know as together we stand and sing this song of invitation.